around. So it's it's really that trying to get that mentality of we be safe, you know, come race tomorrow, it's all okay. And because uh, it is competitive, it is racing. The fangs come out like you want to win, you're pushing it. And uh, so it's it's really just to try to get that culture of being safe. Hi, and welcome to episode 23 of the Spread Aviation Podcast. I am Matt. I'm Rob. And uh, we're we're live from Man Cave Studios. It's 11.40 p.m. at night uh, on a Saturday. We're you don't have tired. to say p.m. at night. You could just say p.m. You know, I always or do it's that. it's 11.40 at night. I always do that. You know, in, in my, like, technical work that I do, uh, I always say, well, what are you going to do when stuff breaks at 2 a.m. in the morning? Who's going to fix it? <laughs> and people, instead of actually coming up with an answer to that question, say, you know, 2 a.m. in the morning is is repetitive. Just 2 a.m. Yeah, or the department of 2 in the department. morning. Yeah. That's anyway. All that happened there. So um, Rob and I have both had a busy day. Rob's day has been a little longer than mine. I woke I'm up- not complaining. Yeah? I'm, let's just get that out there. I'm very happy. I had a great day. Well, tell us what you did. I got to fly. I was flying uh, uh, aerobatics with uh, a guy that I've actually been flying with for the last couple of years, and he flew down from Maine, uh, and we did about an hour in the airplane, worked on some things, and then uh, we went to the IAC Chapter 35 meeting, and there was a whole bunch of people there. It was probably the biggest turnout I've ever seen at a at an IAC 35 meeting. And so that was really good. And then we all went to lunch together, uh, swapped manly stories, and talked about air shows and aerobatics and airplanes. And, and those aren't necessarily manly. Those can be any gender. I suppose they could be. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. Uh, let's see. Uh, we talked about chest hair. That's manly. No, we didn't talk about <laughs> chest hair. <laughs> Moving on. Digging holes. Then Rob, uh, then Rob came to Boston, picked me up. Yeah, then I drove an hour or so into Boston. I put, uh, not tinfoil, saran wrap on my toilet. That, which is a completely lost joke on right. most anyone that follows Plain Talk Podcast, but that, that kind of harks back to uh, Five years New ago? Year's. Four years ago? Something like yeah, that? It was, it was New Year's 2015 into 2016. We were at... Tia's hotel in D.C., and I kind of wanted to pull a joke on Rob, so I put saran wrap on his toilet, and he noticed it because I didn't smooth it out. So, of course, <laughs> there was no way I was not, not going to notice that. We have a video of it. One of these days we'll post it. The same thing that happened today was I walked into the bathroom, saw the saran wrap on the edge well, of the bowl. Well, now, hold on. And I this, went, mm, Rob, yeah, what well, do I did that? In this case, this is my bathroom so i didn't want you to not notice it i wanted you to notice it because <laughs> otherwise the the joke would have been on me i noticed it at the hotel as right. well but one five of these years ago. one of these days you're not going to notice it because i'm going to spend so much time just making it super smooth but at the same time eventually i'm going to get too old <laughs> to pull this prank it's just not going to be age appropriate anymore so i'll have to get <laughs> it done soon uh so anyway so after after that whole scenario uh so then we drove all the way back to your house. My house, because I forgot my ID badge. And then we went out to Fitchburg Airport, and we spent a couple hours out there, pulled a plane out, did some filming for our first... I think we got, we got there at 4 and we left at 7. Yeah, yeah. 7.15, 7.30, something like that. No, 7.30, because it was half an hour before sunset. And uh, we got a lot of filming done, and we're pretty excited. Uh, Rob and I made our first attempt to film a course maybe second first attempt. three weeks ago. Well, <laughs> okay. Yeah, three weeks ago, and... Uh, the Rob likes to overcomplicate things and used a software package for his video recorder that had a big grid on it. And so I didn't notice that the footage was out of focus the entire time. So we took like two hours of out of focus footage that was unusable. And so we went back today to to do it all over again. And I think we got it this time. And we had some pretty good lighting. Yeah. It was awesome. Well, well yeah, you fought me on using the lighting. Still and... fought you on it, but yeah, well, we, we did it We did it outside. And I got a great tan. <laughs> so, <laughs> with the sun in your eyes the entire time. Yes, my eyes were watering <laughs> very badly towards the end, and, and that's the only thing about this footage is it's toward the end. It, it was very hard to open my eyes. <laughs> so that'll be interesting to see uh, and see how that really comes out on the, on the medium-sized screen. But we did get a, a good, you know, side video um, B-roll out of this, which is uh, antennas on a Piper, uh, Piper Cherokee. So we posted that to YouTube, Facebook. Check it out. Uh, it'll be up there perpetually, so it's worth checking out. Um, 
Yeah. No, that'll be good. It'll be on Instagram. For what did you just do? Forever. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Can you hear you? Yeah. Is it doubled? Yeah. It's just weird. It's just weird because it's only in one ear? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's fine. Here, I can do <laughs> this, and I can make it in both ears. See, the problem is everybody that's listening to us doesn't care. It's all mono for them anyway. You got to cut this part because last episode we had like five minutes of, can you hear me now? Are you cool? Does this work now? But that okay. didn't go, did that go live? Yeah, you oh. kept the whole thing in the Oh, episode. yeah, that's right. I did. <laughs> that was so, anyway, moving on so we don't bore people. So today we've got an awesome episode. Uh, we've got two sections. The first section is we had the awesome opportunity to um, interview Andrew, air race pilot. Uh, and, and frankly, I didn't Andrew know. Andrew Finley, yeah, from One Moment Racing. Thank you. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's all it's Andrew in Finley. The Trello. It's in the Trello. I just like calling. He's, his name is Andrew. And we can. Yeah. Some, all right. So we had an awesome opportunity to introduce Andrew, or sorry, to interview Andrew Finley. It was, uh, it was a great experience. I didn't know a lot about air racing before this interview and and i've learned a lot from it so i think before we get into this interview uh rob can you give us like a 60 second overview of what air racing is and maybe how it differs from the type of flying that our listeners may be used to oh yeah um reno air racing go fast fly low turn left that's it that's Reno Air Racing. There you go. Got it. So, <laughs> okay, but like, how do these people compete? Like, what? What? Are, oh yeah, there's there, there's there several a Super different Bowl? classes. Like, yeah, there's several different classes, and um, uh, the the air races actually date back to the Cleveland National Air Races, um, and that's that's my hometown, or not my hometown, but my home state, and uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, the air races were an opportunity to go out there and push the boundaries, push the limits, and see who was the fastest. So there's some pretty awesome history with the Cleveland National Air Races. Um, guys like Bob Hoover and um, and Kelly Johnson. Um, there's some really awesome stories uh, about airplanes that, like the uh, the Air Cobra and the King Cobra uh, and Bell and their their contributions and, and and some of the p51s and f8f bearcats and things like that and, and the reno air or the uh, air races moved to reno to kind of become what they are today which is the fastest motorsport that you can participate in um and there's different classes and categories there's uh pay a moderate amount of money to go out there and race to pay millions and millions of dollars to go out there and race. So there's, there's tons to do as far as the crowd goes, the air show, uh, they have air show acts plus the racing from all the different categories. And you're in these big bleachers and probably the craziest, uh, section is section three. They've got all orange shirts and they got big orange threes and, we are actually followed by them on Instagram, which is which is pretty cool. Um, and so, if you, if when we do get a chance to go they out there, we followed us. Oh, they just, dang just it. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> if we if and when we do get a chance to go out there, we will we will definitely have to get uh, seats in section three and hang out with those people. And and um, the interview with Andrew is fantastic because I I met him um, a couple of years ago. I, I met mutual friends of his. And then met him at Sun and Fun last year. I was running around with Pete Muntean. We ran into Andrew and his uh, his dog Charlie the Flying Cavalier, and we got to talking about uh, exhausts and aerodynamics and all kinds of things and turbo setups. And I've I've got a little bit of history with with all of that. So um, I, I it was fun talking to him on the technical aspects, and we get to cover some of that in in the upcoming interview as as well. And he's a wicked smart dude, heck of a pilot, really awesome, uh, really awesome guy to hang around with. And he does, again, have the cutest dog in the world. So, <laughs> Awesome. Well, speaking of interview and Andrew, why don't we get right into it? I'm pretty excited to have our listeners check it out. All right. So here comes uh, Andrew Findlay, 2018 Sport Class Champion. Bye. Why did you say Bye. I cut that. It's fine. No, I'm just because I'm trying to do my whole bye. Bye. See ya. Take care. See ya. See ya. Talk VFR. Frequency change approved.
Well, ladies and gentlemen out there, all you spreaders with Spread Aviation, let's give a big hearty welcome to our special guest today. His name is Andrew Findlay. He likes to fly fast, and uh, we're going to let you... We're gonna we're gonna let you listen to what he's got to say about flying airplanes. Go ahead and say hi to uh, everybody out there in podcast land. Hey, everybody in podcast land! Uh, it's good to be here. Excited to talk about uh, fast little airplanes and uh, all the fun things we can do with ex- with the experimental aviation. All right. Hey, Matt, say hi. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. We're excited to hear what you have to say. Let's start off, Andrew, with uh, with what airplanes you're currently flying. Uh, so my personal airplane is a Lancer Super Legacy. It was built in 2004. I bought it uh, as a flying airplane, but uh, we've since pretty much changed everything on it. There's a few maybe bolts or uh, landing gear items that are the same, but pretty much everything is different. We have uh, tried to optimize it for the most speed you can get. And uh, this last year at Reno set a new speed record in the sport class, so pretty excited about that. And uh, that's my, my fun plane to fly. Uh, the other planes I fly, we have a Cessna 150 that uh, we call it. So I have race 30s, the legacy, but we call the 150 Turtle 30. <laughs> and uh, so we play around at that at the airport. And uh, a couple of my friends and guys on the team are working on getting their pilot certificate in that. So it's fun to, to share that with those guys and get more people interested. And uh, my wife is working on her certificate as well in that. Excellent. Um, so yeah, that's a fun, fun place to we're planning to cruise around. And then uh, we have a great airport community here at Hampton Roads. Uh, we're based uh, just outside of Norfolk, Virginia, and uh, was flying a King Air F90 yesterday. A friend of mine has one of those, and uh, twin Bonanza, a couple other Bonanzas, some RV4s, RV6s, RV8s on the field. Um, really great, fun group of people here to to play with. Outstanding. And uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into flying. So I've always kind of been a motorhead. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, I got into motorcycles and snowmobiles. I grew up in Idaho, so it was lots of motorsports paradise out there in the mountains. And I uh, raced snowcross when I was younger and um, went to Reno the first time when I was 15 and just kind of saw that and was like, oh, this looks really fun. And I was racing snowcross at the time, so I was pure focused on that. I When I jump into something, I'm, I'm pretty focused in it. But uh, kind of had that dream in the back of my mind. So I went to school at University of Idaho, got my degree, and uh, once I got done with school and started working for Evinrude Outboards, and it was like time to, okay, it's time to make this air race dream happen. And uh, so from there, I uh, rented my house out, lived with a buddy, and uh, said, we're going to go race airplanes. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And um, I guess my jumping back a little bit, uh, my first flight uh, was, my dad had a 182 growing up, but I really didn't get into the, the flying bug then. It was kind of just uh, something nice to, to transport us around um, in Idaho. Uh, he got into flying late in his life, and him and a buddy said, hey, we want to get a license. They bought the this old uh, 182. We called it the Hornet um, for the color scheme that was on it. It looked pretty cool with the white, yellow, and black paint job. But uh, wow. So he got that, and um, neither of them knew how to fly when they bought the plane, but uh, him and his partner bought it and learned how to fly. So I kind of got exposed to it, but didn't really bite me as a flying bug. But in college, that's when I decided, you know, I, I need to work on flying and um, getting around the country faster. And, um, so that's when I got my license and then it just kind of exponentially grew from there as, uh, got into more planes and probably the first 10 years of flying, I really only flew maybe 30 to 50 hours a year. Um, it, it takes a long time. So a lot of people see it like, Oh man, that was quick. And you did it so fast. But that first 10 years was actually really slow and just, uh, getting as much flight time as I could when I could hanging out at the airport, meeting the guys on the weekends to go to pancake breakfast uh, you know, just, just being exposed to it and learning as much as you can about it. And then eventually, uh, make the commitment to, to buy your own airplane and, um, see where it can grow. But it's, it's been an incredible ride. Um, after buying the plane, the network of people I've been able to meet, uh, the support group we have on the race team is, is unbelievable. And, um, just the people you get to expose in in aviation is, it's inspiring. I think you have a blog post about that, the people you'll meet uh, in the aviation world. And when you say, uh, your dad got started flying later in life, about how old was he? Uh, he would have been, let's see, that was in the early nineties. So he would have been 45, I guess, somewhere in there. Okay. All right. Yep. So yeah, folks out there who have always had kind of had the bug to go fly. It's uh, there's no, there's no age limit to start flying or even, uh, on the on the low end or the high end to to start to go up with a with a flight instructor so go out there and and do that first flight and and 
And that bug, it'll, it'll bite you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we have friends at our airport. Uh, a couple of them started flying. One was at 59, I think another one's at 61, and they they did it, and um, they love it now, and so they, they can't get enough of it. It's it's just fun hanging out here, and um, it, it really gives you that, that freedom that uh, not many other things can do when you take off that just that when you rotate and you're everything kind of all your challenges and stress that all just kind of melts away and you take off in the evening and go for an evening flight and um it's it's just a great freedom that we have here and uh, i've done a lot of traveling for work um, over to europe and germany and china and um, the philippines and that area and the freedom we have to fly in america is truly remarkable and i'd, I'd really encourage people to take more advantage of that because uh, the price of it's relatively inexpensive compared to some of the other foreign countries and other countries you can't even fly. So, um, it's, it's pretty, we're pretty lucky to do what we do here. Definitely amazing. And it's definitely great to hear those stories from, uh, from those listeners who are in other parts of the world and, uh, to take the opportunities that you've had to, to fly in other places and, and see those differences. It really lets you appreciate the freedom that we have here. And, and uh, we need to make sure that we're working with organizations to preserve that freedom, uh, especially when there's rumblings in the government about them trying to uh, in, enhance regulations mm -hmm. and make flying even harder. So, Andrew, you're not a professional pilot, or, or are you? Uh, so my day job, I'm an engineer. Um, I'm working at Steel, uh, the chainsaw company, and I do, uh, I've do. i worked in the test cells and product audit area and the business excellence team there. So uh, with the engineer background, it's it's all about you know process improvement, quality improvement, um, trying to make anything we can in the company better on our team right now. So it's um, that's my day job. And then for aviation, it's really just a, a passion. I think it's, you know, the racing aspect, it, to me, it's a, it's a, it is a full-time job to make that happen. The commitment you have to have to, to take it to the level our team has um, is a pretty big commitment. But um, I, I'm just the normal, normal guy that loves flying airplanes, and um, I actually just recently got my commercial certificate. Uh, I've been a private pilot um, for the last 16 years, so it's, uh, it's definitely possible for anybody to do it. If you don't mind me asking, uh, like what phase of your life were you in when you started to learn how to fly? I was a, let's see, I was probably a junior in college okay. is when I got my license. So I did it, I uh, started it one summer. Uh, one, some people always ask me, like, well, how much time does it take to get your license? I'm like, well, it's, you know, 40 hours is the minimum, but plan on six months to a year to do your license. So, because life gets in the way and things happen. So I, I started it, I think my junior year and I ended up uh, racing snowcross. I blew my knee out the next year. And so I had to take some time off and, you know, it was, so that lag was in there. So it took me about a year to, to finish it and get it all done. But, um, yeah, it, just, it takes time and you got to do the study inside of it. And it's not just the, the flying part of it. So you can kind of multitask when life changes a little bit. We often talk about how uh, there's a lot of overlap between, say, for example, physicians, what they go through in an operating room and uh, pilots, what they go through when they're flying. There's checklists, things like that. Um what are some of the things that overlap with aviation and your engineering job? Uh, when I worked at Evinrude, I got to work in the dyno lab and do engine calibration. And uh, we had a great group there of, of playing with engines. So that engine experience and, you know, listening to the engine and talking to engines, um, watching what happens when you change calibration and doing that, it that translates directly to, to racing. So we're pushing the engine so hard in the race plane that I have to be monitoring that. So I can trim each cylinder individually with my fuel system from SDS. Uh, I'm always watching the temperatures. I'm watching the ADI, the water methanol injection that we have. So that engine calibration experience really helps me a lot. Um, you know, whenever I'm flying any airplane, it, it's always listening for that little thing that, you know, something running weird. What can I do to make it better? Um, you know, if you're running Lena peak on my system, I can advance ignition timing. So all those little engine parameters I learned along the way really make it a lot of fun for me to fly an airplane. Wow. That's, that's really hands-on when you have that much detail and that much control in the cockpit flying down low at 400 knots or yeah, 400 knots. That's a lot of going on. Yeah, there's, there's a lot going on. So it's, it's really fun. So this, this is another part of it, uh, is getting in the zone or getting into flow. This is one of the other things that I really love about flying. So, um, I was just down at a conference uh, in Miami with Stephen Kotler, and he's doing the Flow Collective. And it's a group of us that we're trying to figure out what is going on in the brain when that happens. What's the neurobiology? What's the neurochemistry that happens? And because it's such an incredible experience when you're in flow and when we're racing, 
you almost have to be in flow. So in action sports, you get that adrenaline and the dopamine and all that stuff in the system. And that helps you focus and you're kind of hyper aware of what's going on. So when we are racing at 400 miles an hour, going around the course, um, trying to keep the engine alive, watching for other planes, watching the pylons, like you have to be in that state where you're, you're multitasking and doing things that you can't just do in a normal state. So it's, it's getting into that, the mind games of it and kind of the sports psychology of it. That It's another exciting part of it that that's fun to chase and try to figure out. First of all, are you one of the only people that can break the, uh, 250 knots below 10,000 rule yeah so they they wave so we i think we wave like 30 or 40 of the farrs when we go race in reno but yeah normally um when i'm planning my descent i'll you know do 270 coming down the hill and then when i get to 10,000 feet i always have to pull the power back to slow down so i don't break the rules but uh yeah the the legacy is an amazing machine you can you can really go fast in it gotcha gotcha interesting and i i think we're what i'd like to ask is uh, we have a lot of listeners that either they're private pilots or just you know somewhat into general aviation um, that might not even necessarily know what air racing is in general. So I'm not asking you to go into five or 10 minute detail, but could you, could you kind of start from the top a little bit and, and kind of explain maybe what it is uh, and, and maybe just like what a day in the life is for you as you go sure. through a process of uh, racing? So the Reno in uh, you're right on that. A lot of people that are pilots don't even know about the air races. So um, it's been around since uh, this was the 55th anniversary of it. And it's been around for a long time. It started way back in the 30s um, with the Cleveland Air Races. And then in 64, it was moved to uh, Reno Stead Airport out in Nevada. And it started, Warbirds were a surplus. And a lot of people are out there racing them for fun and doing that. But kind of it's evolved into uh, the biggest class out there right now is the sport class. And this is home-built airplanes. So Lancers, Glassers, Thunder Mustangs, uh, a bunch of RVs raced with us. Uh, that group of people, we're, we're taking this experimental class of airplane. We're racing eight airplanes at a time. It's kind of like a NASCAR race in the sky. So eight airplanes at a time. You have to pass on the outside. We do training in the summer to make sure everybody's safe and capable of doing it. Um, but it's it's a real race. You're out there wingtip to wingtip seeing who can go the fastest. And we divide it eight airplanes at a time, and we have different speeds. Uh, we break it down by speed, and each speed goes on a little bit different course. Really, that's for the crowd to keep people coming by, make sure the leaders are coming by every minute, approximately, is the how it breaks down. Um, but it's a it's closed course racing, and um, I I kind of joke it's the last true motorsport because it's a run what you brung. We can our rules say any fluid or fuel to make it go fast. So NASCAR and Formula One, they while they're amazing motorsports in their own right, they they have a lot of rules and restrictions, and you know trying to make it as even as possible. Uh, we're out there. What can we do to push the man and machine to go faster and faster? So it's it's pretty exciting and a really fun group of people to hang out with. Oh wow! I didn't uh, I didn't quite realize that it was a run what you brung uh, situation. Yeah. And how much of your optimizations are engine based versus uh, just making sure you're trying to like reduce drag and and uh, you know focusing more on the forces of flight than than you know how powerful your engine is so for for the ones of us that are turbocharged um it's all about making more horsepower and uh really getting the engine to survive at the high power level so uh we but we don't do just that um it's somebody will say you know what's the one thing that makes the plane go fast and you know lee beal always said there's 50 things that make the airplane go fast and and he's right it has to be everything so we've broken it down to where we've added fuselage uh, the aft part of the fuselage, we added about three inches to that because the tufts, when we tough tested it with little pieces of yarn, we were seeing some airflow disturbance. So we widened that out. So Andre Prager, we call him the mad scientist. He he modeled all that and 3D scanned the airplane and we designed it all in CAD and, and changed that. Um, internally above the engine, we're trying to minimize the cooling drag. So in a piston-powered airplane and GA airplanes, your total drag of the airplane, roughly 30% of that is cooling drag. So what can we do to capture the air that comes in to cool the cylinders, uh, not have any leaks, make sure we're using every little bit of that air to cool the engine? In our case, because we're running so much power, we actually spray water on the engine as well, trying to get it extra cooling. And you know, the dry air out in Reno, you can really get a the latent heat of vaporization. You can suck a lot of energy out of that um, by spraying water on it. So we're optimizing that. Uh, along with aerodynamics, the power, uh, it's about... You know, in racing, it's getting the power to the ground. For us, it's turning all that power into thrust. So with the team from Macaulay, they've made us this custom one-off race blade. It's got a crazy amount of twist. It's a short little blade, and um, it really fat cord on it, and you know stuff like that. That it kind of it 
doesn't work very good at takeoff, but we're optimizing for that high speed point. So at high speed, it carries us through that 400 mile an hour point uh, where we can, you know, push where normal props wouldn't work up there. Now you were pushing speeds in the sport class that the unlimited guys were, I think only the top three were ahead of you in speed. Is that your recollection as well yeah so this uh this was a slower year for the unlimiteds uh so like strega and voodoo weren't there they can go 500 miles an hour but uh dreadnought was there i think their speed this year was 416 which they were i think they were just kind of cruising because second place sets the pace but uh so yeah they were there in miss america as a p51 um it was probably running 100 inches of manifold pressure i think it was uh the 409 range so it beat us by a couple miles an hour but uh, they got way bigger engines. Dreadnought's got a 4360 on there, and we just have a little 550 in our bird. So it's, uh, yeah, we're getting up there and pushing it and making, you know, the, the Unlimiteds are amazing. And, I, you know, I dream of racing one one day as well. But it's it's cool to see so many different uh, elements of racing out of Reno. It's, it's the Unlimiteds. It's the Jets pushing 500. It's the racing that happens in the biplanes. Those guys, the Phantom biplane is a one-off custom biplane that does amazing stuff. Uh the stories you get, so in the Formula One class, Formula One is a, that that is a very restricted rule class. So it's 200 cubic inches, a minimum wing area, uh, certain heights for the pilot, weight restrictions, all that stuff. Uh, the stories you get in that, so the guy that won this year, Justin Meters, he actually was a paraplegic. But they put hand controls in his Formula One casset, which most people wouldn't even think about getting in a casset because you like pretty much wear it. But Justin's story is, in, is so inspiring because... He's like, I want to keep racing. He was a motocross guy when he got in- injured, but he said, I want to keep racing. I'm going to modify my airplane. And, you know, he's out there winning the Formula um, Championship. So it's it's amazing what you can do with these airplanes out in Reno, and it's it's, it's everybody that's that's making great racing out there. Oh, yeah, and they're, they're turning those 200 cubic inch engines, 4,500 RPM, and that's insane numbers to me yep so they're and they're doing it with propellers so the you know when you overspeed your your cessna um there's there's other forces when you you know it's, it's the internal components of the engine but it's also the propeller can get into some pretty nasty vibrations when you overspeed it so uh but the internal engine components on these are they're pretty robust engines and you know that's they've been around for so many years they the factories have done a good job designing that power plant Absolutely. So, so quick question on this. I'm kind of curious to know where the overlap is between air racing and, you know, the types of aerobatic competitions that Rob, for example, would partake in. But do, do you do any sort of aerobatics training to help improve your racing? Yeah, I think the big focus we have in Reno. Um, so when we do pylon school in June, um, I get to help teach that. And we have a really amazing group of aviators out there that help teach us to race. And um, from Navy guys, Air Force guys, we kind of blend all this amazing military training into how we can fly and race in Reno the safest. So we have a whole week of flying where we really focus on the formation fundamentals. Um, that's probably the most important thing we do when we're racing because racing is kind of uncooperative formation. Um, so racing in Reno, I think the most important aspect is the, the formation aspect of it. So it's how do you move maneuver your airplane around another airplane? How do you... Uh, make sure that you can maneuver it around the course just right. So we still have that formation contract. We're still respecting the the person on the inside or the person in front of you, making sure we pass on the outside. So um, through all that training we do, uh, we really focus on the safety aspect of it. We call it September Family just because what we're doing, nobody's making money doing it. It's really just a ton of fun to do with your airplane. So we want to make sure everybody's safe and everybody comes home at the end of the day. Um, another part um, besides the flying is managing the engine, making sure the engine survives. And then then with that, we really focus on emergency procedures as well. So wherever we're at on the course in Reno, if we have an emergency or the, an engine failure or power loss, we know exactly what we're going to do. We're going to pitch up. We're going to go to the middle of the glide cone, and then we're going to pick a runway. And depending where we're at on the course, we kind of divide it up like a clock. So if I'm coming between two and three, I'm going to pitch up, and I'm pretty much on a left downwind for one four, and I can go there. At the speeds we're at, I can zoom climb probably 1,500 AGL, maybe a little higher. Uh, but if I have a complete catastrophic engine failure, it's going to take me about 45 to 60 seconds and all in. So it's it's actually the, the best place to have an engine failure is Reno. Maydays are free. If you don't like what you see, pull the power back, call a mayday, and just come land and figure it out on the ground. Um, going cross-country, it's it's a little different because you have to hopefully be in glide distance of an airport. But, uh, but I think the... Going to your original question of the aerobatic stuff, I, I love flying aerobatics. 
Um, I do it as much as I can. The legacy is not really good for spins and stalls or any of that stuff. It's, it does really great loops and big giant clover leaves and barrel <laughs> rolls. It's a ton of fun for that. So you mentioned, uh, in Reno, uh, maydays are free. So is that, you mean they're free as in you're always close to a runway, so it's free or, or is there some other meaning to that? Um, so yeah, meaning maydays are free. It's, you know, you're, you're not going to have to do all the, the paperwork and the FAA is not going to call you for saying the emergency word or mayday word. You know, it's our, our whole goal is to keep everybody safe. So if you don't like what you see, a cylinder hemp temperature is hot and oil temperature is hot. There's a weird vibration. Just, just call a mayday and come land and figure it out on the ground. So it's, it's really that trying to get that mentality of we be safe, you know, come race tomorrow. It's all okay. And, uh, cause it is competitive. It is racing. The fangs come out like you want to win, you're pushing it. And, uh, so it's, it's really just to try to get that culture of being safe and, um, don't feel bad about mayday. And so in my six years of racing, uh, three of them I've made aid cause something broke or it didn't look right. And three of them we finished. And, um, so it's, it's just part of the, part of the experience that, um, it's mechanical and sometimes it breaks. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so would you say a good analogy to maybe private pilots that are listening to our podcast is it's kind of the same as trying to encourage them to say, you know, you can go around anytime kind of similar. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you, nothing in aviation should be rushed. So, um, you know, the, the adage of if you have a, an engine failure in a multi-engine airplane, your first thing you do is just wind the clock, you know, and unless you're like on the deck and get a, a VR cut or a V1, like that's one thing. But, um, if you're just out cruising or you don't like what you see, like just take it around glide. Um, if you have an emergency, the first thing you do is pitch for best glide and then figure out what your options are. So nothing really needs to be rushed. And, and I think that's where, um, some people get in trouble or they try to force something to happen. I guess that that's all I can say is you don't need to rush anything. Just think about it. One interesting thing that kind of came up in the, in the flow conference that I was at was when we get in a, a flow state or a high pressure situation, like the chemicals that are released in our brain, uh, make us feel like we can do it. Uh, they, they, the sense of time goes away and, um, scratch Mitchell, he was a, uh, F-18 demo pilot and a snowboard pilot. And I think he flies the T-33 for the ace maker guys. Now he gives a great brief on the normalization of deviation. The concept is when we get in a situation that's not good flying, we, we kind of get that feeling like, Oh, it's not that bad. Like the weather's not that bad or that engine vibration doesn't seem that bad, or maybe I can fly a little lower. So you become normal to this non-standard situation. And, and part of that, um, from what we learned down there, I think a lot of it has to do with just the neurochemistry that's going on in our brains, because when you have that high frame rate, when you have the total embodiment in a situation like flying is those, those chemicals make you think you can do anything. And it's kind of being aware of that state that, you know, I, I am going to be in a different mental state. Um, cause you can do something flying and we get back on the ground. You're like, why did I do that? That doesn't make any sense. And, or if you're hangar flying, you say, Oh, I'd never do that. I'd never do that. You know, I, why would I run out of gas? I would never do that. Um, but when you get in that, you're like, oh, I could probably make it. So it's, it's just being aware of that and making good decisions. There's a bit of the mindset too, where with pilots, we're trained to keep going, keep flying when you're dealing with problems. And that is almost ingrained in us as a better result than completely giving up than resignation mm -hmm. and uh, there definitely needs to be a balance for sure all right so let's talk a little bit about the race day the 2018 sport class championship and w what can you tell us about going around those pylons and knowing that you were ahead of the guy who had dominated the class for the last couple of years well, it's, it's been an amazing journey with the team out there. We, you know, my, my dream was always to participate in Reno and be part of it. And, um, to the level we've been able to take it has been, um, just, it's a dream come true and, and more. So, uh, you know, we pushed it, uh, last year and unfortunately I made a mistake and bumped the mixture knob and, uh, accidentally turned the engine off on the final race and had to mayday. But, uh, this year, you know, we, as soon as I got back from 2017, we took the whole airplane apart. We made sure everything was perfect. We did tons of work all winter, made sure that, you know, everything was going to work just right. And so at the beginning of race week on Thursday, we had some pretty good speed. We qualified higher than we ever had. And Thursday, we kind of got next to Jeff and it was like, oh, man, this is possible because Jeff is an amazing competitor, um, amazing engineer. He's he's really set the bar high with his airplane. And, you know, we're still chasing the dreams of uh, or the, the bar that was set by Daryl Greenemeyer and John Sharp and 
you know, what they did with the NXT going over 400 miles an hour the first time, like that bar was up there. And um, so chasing that dream has been pretty amazing. So we've been chasing the, the bar set by Daryl and John Sharp and those guys. And um, so Jeff had set the bar so high. So Thursday we got next to him and, you know, the whole sport class, we were all so excited and everybody's like, oh my gosh, it's actually possible. There could be a race at the top because he's really dominated it for so long. Friday we um, well that that evening on Thursday we did the Missy Man for John Parker, and uh, which was really you know an, another guy that really set the bar high and was a real amazing fixture to the whole Reno atmosphere. So really was a bummer to lose him last year, but uh, was honored to find the Missy Man and um, his crew chief Mike got to fly with me. But during that flight, I put a bunch of air in the the ADI system. So when we came down the chute on Friday, I put the power to it and had all the automatic ADI pumps and nothing happened don't break the baby on Friday. Um, so we got, we came down, landed and checked everything out and everything worked fine on the ground. Once there wasn't any back pressure on the pumps and the, the boost wasn't trying to, to backflow. So then, uh, did a test flight that night, did another test flight Saturday morning. Like, okay, we're, we're good. It's going to work. And, um, so because I went slow, I had to start on the outside on Saturday. And so, which kind of gave me a really nice smooth line coming around the, the backside of the course and the guys on the inside had to kind of do a tight turn. So, had a great start, came around, uh, caught up to Jeff on the first lap, and then just stayed really tight. And through all the years at Pylon School and practicing, Sean Van Hatten and I, we played this uh, the pilot or the uh, the geometry game we call it. So we'll tuck in on each other and really work that angle and try to make it so we can you know just pass with geometry and not have to use power. So I'm flying the line, I'm sitting high on him, and we come around two and three and. I kind of use that altitude and push down a little bit to get some airspeed and, you know, pull by him and I'm watching him, watching him. And then pretty soon I can't see him and we're coming up on pylon four. I'm like, Oh, all right, I'm clear. And here we go. So got the pass on on Saturday and it was just, it was surreal to, to make that happen. And, you know, everybody was so excited. We landed and um, Jeff was excited. He's like, finally, we get a race. You know, this is awesome. That was, he goes, that was the funnest race I've had in so long as we were out there battling, trying to, to get the best line. Wow. So that's awesome. Saturday night, Saturday night was exciting and it was, it was really electric cause you know, Jeff has set a, a bar so high and we, we averaged like 385 on uh Saturday, but he's put down some over 400 qual laps. So, you know, doing a 400 race and doing a 400 qual is a little different. Um, conditions always change and, you know, to hold the power for that long is, is also a challenge. So I was, I was concerned, but we had tested a, a higher power setting Wednesday morning to make sure that the engine would spool up. Um, when we go to the really big boost, sometimes it'll surge a little bit. And so I, I didn't go as much as it would do, but I went as much as I was comfortable with to really still get it to spool. So um, I, I was going to add more power, but I knew Jeff had a little more power as well. So Sunday we came down the chute. We're in the pole position. Like, holy cow, we're, you know, I'm usually looking over at Jeff, but I'm just looking at the L39. That's our pace plane. And like, all right, this, mm -hmm. this is all ours. I can focus. I can fly the line. It's, it's going to be great. So coming down the chute, um, they said you had a race. I go to push the power up and the engine like sneezed and coughed. And like, I'm like, oh no. Cause, uh, three years ago, I think it was, I blew the exhaust off of it when mm -hmm. it did that. And I'm like, ah, oh, I just blew the exhaust off. And, but I, I just kind of held it there and I was like, let's see if it lights. And, uh, and luckily it did that one big cough and then it just, it lit and away we went. So I was like, Oh yes, it's alive. Here we go. <laughs> so it came down. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, yeah, we, we turned the power up and, uh, and I think Jeff kind of had his power setting where he's, he normally averages 385 to 390 for most of his races. So I think he kind of had that power setting and I, th I think he tried to turn it up, um, through as the race went, but it, it's also a game of attrition. So, you know, I was, he knew I was pushing mine really hard. So I was, you know, I, I came to Reno with six cylinders and 10 pistons and four turbos. Like I was ready to see what it takes to, uh, to make this happen. So, you know, he, and I've, I've melted it down before. So, you know, I think he was, he could have been playing the game of attrition too, to like, well, let's see if Andy can hold it together. Wow. That's awesome. And that's a testament to the continental engine that you've put in your airplane. Uh, what makes it special? So a lot of what we do, um, the base of the engine is pretty standard. Uh, we've lowered the compression ratio. So a standard Continental, this 550 has 8.5 to 1. The turbo ones are 7.5 to 1 compression. We've lowered this one to 6.5 to 1. And that allows us to pack more air in the cylinders and keep the peak pressure down when uh, when the combustion happens. We've added spray bars to the outside of the engine. Uh, the, we have the giant turbochargers from Turbonetics. That allows us to run you know 80-plus inches of manifold pressure. Uh, we've added an extra oil pump 
um, really the, the oil temperature, these are oil cooled engines is kind of the, the analogy that I use. Um, we had an extra, extra oil pump. We had bigger spray nozzles on the piston. And then we also, I was when I measured it, I was seeing a 10 PSI drop across the engine. So we have that second oil pump actually feeds the front of the engine. So it does two things. It gives us better uh, lubrication to the bottom end. It gives us better spray to the bottom of the pistons. And it also feeds the governor lots of oil. So Is that a dry sump or a wet sump? It's a wet sump. Oh, wow. Okay. So, That's surprising. Yep. With that wet sump, you know, oil pressure is king, and especially for the prop governor. So we're, we're going down the chute. We go from kind of 30 inches up to the 80 inches of manifold pressure. That's a big jump, and the prop governor's got to keep up with that. So making sure the prop governor is fed with good oil pressure is important. We've had a couple uh, oversped props because of that big power surge that happens coming down the hill. And then adding the plenum, making sure that works, and... Uh, Another big part of it is getting that much fuel. So a typical 550, when I cruise around, I'm burning 13 or 14 gallons an hour. At race power, I'm burning 80 gallons an hour. So Mark Voss modified our mechanical pump so it can flow 120 gallons an hour now. And we have the SDS uh, EF5 fuel injection on there. So now I can trim each cylinder. And we have big giant injectors in there to, to make sure we can get that fuel into the engine. So it's it's a ton of different things that we've done to uh, to make the engine survive at that power. And not to give away any secrets, but uh, are there any adjustments for 2019? Uh, for 2019, it's really making the systems more robust. So like we talked about the air bubble that got in the system um, on Friday. So it's making the ADI system a little more robust. Uh, we're putting, replacing some of the mechanical relays with solid state relays. Um, really just trying to refine the systems and make it better. Um, we talked about the compressor surge a little bit when the power came up. So Turbonetics is going to do a little different compressor for us that should help alleviate that. Um, it's really, you know, having that industry support uh, really helps the the game of what we're trying to do. And uh, so with all those little things, it's really refining it. 20, 2018 was a big year by how much boost we added. Um, we also clipped a foot off each wing. So if anybody's seen a legacy, they already have pretty small wings, but we took another foot off each wing, um, just trying to get the last little bit of speed out of it. And we probably would have cut more, but the fuel bay was there and it was really easy just to take that foot off. So, yeah, it's, those are kind of the big changes last year. So this year is really just about refining it, making it more robust. Um, we'll do some weight reduction things, which is really just trying to, you know, spend money on titanium parts, which is expensive. So that just uh, costs money. But um, we'll probably do some cooling drag changes, um, trying to optimize that system. But it's one thing that we try to do on the team is really share what we're doing so everybody can do it. So just like you guys are trying to spread aviation, we're trying to spread how to go fast with your airplane, how to have fun in Reno, how to be safe in Reno, and <laughs> uh, and get get people excited about it and tell everybody what's happening. All right, Andrew. Well, thank you very much for that. Uh, uh, Matt, did you want to ask your... So uh, you guys are talking highly technical, and I understand 50%, maybe 60% of it. No, a lot more than that. But there's, there's a lot of stuff here that I think our listeners will definitely have to have to look up. So my first question for you is somebody that wants to learn more about air racing or somebody that doesn't necessarily fully understand everything you're talking about with regards to mechanical versus solid state this, et cetera, et cetera. Where can they go to find out more? Yeah, to check out more information about it, uh, you can go to our website, onemomentairracing.com, and we share a lot of the stuff we did. So the wing design is on there. Um, some of the, the engine mods that we did are on there. Uh, for checking out Sport Class, you can go to the Sport Class Air Racing website. Uh, if you want to dive into uh, kind of limited racing, the, there's some forums on AAFO. Uh, I think it's all aviation forums online is what it stands for, but AFO.com and go to the air racing forum. And it's got loads and loads of history of the, of what happened in their races um, for many, many years. It's fun to peruse in there. Uh, Facebook, you can follow us uh, team one moment on Facebook. And we, I really try to post as much as we can on there to share stuff with people of what we're doing. And uh, it's, it's really fun. And if you have questions, feel free to reach out and, uh, and ask me and we'll, we'll share what we're doing and um, try to help more people. That's awesome. That's awesome. And and going back to some of the things you were saying earlier, I didn't want to interrupt, but uh, I'm curious are you are you solo in the plane, or it sounded like you've got a you've got a partner in there, right? Um, so when we're racing, we're solo. But uh, for working on the plane, we have a, an amazing team. If you look at the gear doors, you know, al al along with all the sponsors on the cowl and the side of the plane, the the gear doors is the amazing army of people that help make the plane go fast. So it's 
uh, this group of people from my current roles and past roles, a couple former bosses, you know, even that they'd love to come to Reno. It's, it's one of those events where everybody gets together and it just has a ton of fun. And, um, all these guys love to make airplanes go fast. And so we, we have a lot of fun and, um, it's really the team that helps put everything together and, and make this as successful as it's been. All right. Awesome. That's, that's very helpful. And then my final question I love to ask because we are an aviation safety podcast. And we focus on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is one thing you've learned in your experience that you'd love to share with our viewers about being safer in an airplane? Um, I think we talked about it a little bit before is, is really just just slow things down and, and try to do things one thing methodically at a time. Uh, you know, flying with friends, when I see them get, get hurried as they're flying, it's, it's because they didn't plan ahead. So when you're coming in, you know, will just break it down to like a simple thing when you're landing, just, you know, get it, get the power back and set, you know, when you're on the 45 and get configured in the downwind. So you're really only changing one element at a time. And, and if you can hit your marks and be consistent each time, it's, it's going to make flying way easier. So, uh, to me, it's, it's slow it down and, and be as methodical as you can about flying. And, and it really, it's, you're going to refine the practice and you're going to master it. All right. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time today, Andrew. And, uh, I think the next interview should be, uh, in person, uh, maybe over the headsets or something like that yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with video rolling. That would be, uh, yeah, we should, be the best. we should get together and That'd do that. Awesome. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll definitely should talk again. And, uh, if you guys are ever down in the Norfolk area, um, we'll go do some flying and, Go show you how fun the legacy is. That's well, awesome. Thank you I'm very in, much. I'm in Richmond pretty often, yeah. but uh, I don't know how far Norfolk That's is close. from there. It's only like 90 minutes and or two hours with traffic, okay. but yeah, it's close. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to make yeah. something happen. Well, in the Lancer, it's probably three uh, minutes. It's like 13. <laughs> when I'm on my descent over Richmond, it's usually 13 minutes to home. So. Wow, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a quick airplane. It's pretty fun. All right. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, and uh, take care. Take care. Sounds good. You guys have a great evening. We'll see you. All right, so that was awesome. Thank you very much to Andrew Findlay for spending an evening with us here at uh, at Spread Aviation. <laughs> I know, I almost said it again. I almost said it. Um, the old podcast. You do one podcast for almost a year, and it's tough to it's tough to get rid of that name. R.I.P. Spread. Um, no, wait, never mind. <laughs> no. no. R.I.P. Plane Talk Podcast. Moving uh, on. Moving Thank on. you, Andrew. Yes, thank you very much. All right, so our second segment today is I bet you I bet many of you have trouble with a certain aspect of landing and know that's not necessarily the flare. Wait, wait the not, whole thing is hard. <laughs> that's true. But today we're gonna cover specifically, we're gonna talk about reasons you may not be landing on center line. I'm only covered in three of them. <laughs> Because the rest you can find on our blog's podcast page at spreadaviation.com. So, Matt, pick your favorite three. All right. <laughs> you sound so disappointed. I thought we were going to talk about all of them. All, of them. all ten. Uh, this episode's already an hour and 15 <laughs> minutes. All right. So, let's go with misinterpretation. Ah. Ah. Reading a windsock requires a bit of mental gymnastics. Seeing the object to the right or left may cause a brief misinterpretation of where the wind is coming from, leading to improper control inputs. Best to go around. This is my number one reason for not landing on the center line. I misread the windsock all the time. It's something that it's a habit I am trying to get out of. Tell us more about it, Rob. I don't think it's necessarily like a, a habit. There's a lot going on when you're coming to land. It's a very busy mental time. And you have so much input and there's so many things going on. When you glance at that windsock, there's a very quick period of time where the thing is pointing to the right, and all your brain associates is right, and that the wind must be coming from the right. That must be where it's it it, it is. And I mean, it still happens to me occasionally. You know, it's it, it's not necessarily just something that is to new pilots or a problem to new pilots. It's really a stress thing. It's just another piece of information that your brain has to process at a time when it's already really, really busy. So it's very easy to get confused or overloaded or overwhelmed and then have an interpretation error of what's going on there. And you may 
initially put in a crosswind input or a, a control input that makes the situation worse and you'll have maybe another couple seconds of startle factor going hey why is this getting worse why isn't this doing what i wanted to do oh wait i gotta do this i gotta go over here i gotta reverse this oh that that sock is doing something different and uh you know maybe we'll load shed uh looking um looking at a a, a chart or maybe we'll uh, ignore a radio call or something like that because something else has got our attention so the interpretation error that happens, I see it very frequently, uh, especially if you've had maybe an air traffic controller give you a wind check and it said one thing and then you look at the windsock and you go, oh, that's a completely different direction. Oh, that, that there's a data mismatch there and you spend a couple, couple seconds and a couple extra of, uh, joules of brain power to process what's going on. Very cool. All right, number two, mechanical turbulence. This is just a technical term for a structure changing the wind in your immediate vicinity. 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 It's Vin Diesel vicinity. It is late. If a strong crosswind is blocked by a hanger as you're in the flare, the airplane may start to drift suddenly. Tell us more about that, Rob. Yeah, hangers, trees, uh, hills. Any kind of obstruction could even be another airplane sitting on uh, uh, a run-up area and blasting some prop blast. Uh, across the runway um the mechanical turbulence is just air that's being changed uh by by some kind of uh obstruction or something else uh, artificial manipulating it on uh on the ground and it's actually killed pilots well one of the oldest examples that i can think of i don't remember what book i was reading this in it was it was something about um something around the the, the time where we were trying to break the speed of sound and there was a pilot in England I believe they were in a de Havilland Comet and they were doing a high speed pass down the runway on a windy day and they got to uh, a gap in between hangars and the wind changed so abruptly right there and he was so low to the ground that the loss of relative wind uh, slammed the airplane into the ground at a high rate of speed and it and it killed him and now, I've seen that at different airports around this area where you have trees off to the side. Like Nashua is a great example because the right-hand side of the runway is trees until you get or the first 1,000 feet is open. And then after that, it's all trees that are about 60 feet tall on the right-hand side of the runway. And that definitely has an effect uh, on the wind as you get down below that tree line and you may have a sudden loss or a sudden increase in uh, in lift there. So that could cause the airplane to move uh, vertically and or laterally and get you off that center line. All right, awesome. And I'm, I'm jumping around here. These are not entirely in the same order as on the blog post. Yeah, man. Well, let's go with parallax. Fancy word for off-center view. Most training airplanes are side-by-side seating, which means neither pilot is on the longitudinal axis where the center line should be. If it looks like you're not on center line landing these airplanes, oh, sorry. Mm-mm. If it looks like you are on center line landing these airplanes, you're not. Yeah. Um, too often, the pilot tries to put center line down their torso down in between their eyes so like they're looking straight ahead and that will mean that they're off to the to the side of the runway if they're sitting on the left side they'll be on the right hand side of the runway and if they're sitting on the right side of the aircraft they'll be off the left or not the on the left side of center line not the side of the runway um parallax is simply off center viewing and because you're not sitting on the center line of the aircraft there is an error there so what we as instructors try to teach the students is to put that center line down their inside knee. And the knee is actually closer to the center of the aircraft than their head and their eyes. Now, this also kind of does lead to other problems where pilots get used to looking from the left seat to the right to find the center line. And when they make the transition from the left seat to the right seat, they're no longer looking to the right to find the center line. They're looking to the left. This causes a lineup error. And the students 
are then getting frustrated because, oh man, I can't get this thing on the center line or it's going all over the place or why did it go over to that side? You know, and they can't understand why the airplane is doing what it's doing. Well, it's really just because your sight picture has changed. So there's a couple different reasons. Now, if you're in a decathlon or a J3 Cub or any of those airplanes where you are sitting on the center line, put it right down the middle of you. You'll be perfect. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. I guess it is a, a different picture if you're in a, a tandem setup than if you are side by side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Cool. So uh, those are three of the 10. We've got seven others on spreadaviation.com. Check out our latest blog post, top 10 reasons you may not be landing on center line. And if you like top 10 lists, send us an email at hello at spreadaviation.com. Let us know you like it. If you hate top 10 lists, Matt, where can they, uh, where can they find us? Hello at spreadaviation.com. Bingo, you nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we've got time for one online question today before we wrap up episode 23. Today's online question, now I'm not necessarily sure if the context is uh, airliner aviation or if it is general aviation specific, but the question is, how is it possible that pilots know they are about to fly into turbulence? Well, that's that's a fantastic question um, because you generally can't see air currents. However, clouds often get manipulated by the air currents. Um, one of the more common or one of the obvious, hey, we're about to fly into turbulence, is if you're about to fly into a cumulus cloud. Cumulus cloud has vertical development, and that vertical motion of the air is going to have an immediate effect on the relative wind of the aircraft as it hits it, and that's going to change the angle of attack. Well, change in angle of attack, remember your lift equation, is an immediate change in lift on the airplane, which will cause a change in load factor. So you're going to feel the bumps as you go through those different air currents, whether they are uh, shearing vertically or horizontally. So you may get side gusts, you may get vertical gusts, all that stuff just going into a cumulus cloud. Um, Other indications that are cloud-related may be Kelvin-Helmholtz waves. These are cloud tops that actually look like tidal waves or like a a series of tidal waves, and that will be kind of rolling turbulence, Uh, could even be... uh, uh, choppy turbulence, like you're riding on a speedboat on a lake and it's going bah, 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 bah. Uh, you'll, you'll get some of those characteristics as well. Uh, if the airplane is flying over top of a mountain and winds aloft are greater than 15, 25 knots or something like that, depending on your height above that, uh, height above that mountain range, uh, you can easily have mountain wave turbulence into the 30s and 40,000 uh, feet elevations uh so well well up into the to the flight levels um and really pilots that have been around a while and seen things and seen uh situations and conditions that are conducive to turbulence they'll see that stuff and call it out and maybe even one of the easiest ones is oh hey an airliner just crossed our path or went over top of us. Let's hit that seatbelt sign and uh, make sure everybody's buckled in just in case we hit some wake turbulence. Got it. And then there's also the cheat sheet methods, airmets, sigmets, um, pyreps. Pyreps. Yep. 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 So, I mean, last, was it last year? Yeah, it was last year sometime. I hit my head on the ceiling and broke the fuel selector knob on a, on something, on a clear air turbulence that, I mean, there was there was no indication, there was no warning sign, nothing that I was going to hit this thing, and just all of a sudden, boom, the airplane, the, the airplane was uh, not out of control, but I mean, it it definitely deviated greatly from where it was, and then immediately returned, and give a pie rep at that point to tell ATC, hey, if anybody else comes through this spot, you know, I don't know what's what is here or what caused it but this was nasty that was something you did over the radio at that point right yeah, they, they can they can file it not necessarily you right not necessarily oh you you give the pirate they don't know atc doesn't know that something happened you know, unless you tell them right that makes sense yeah give your pirates that helps all the other pilots out too because you are the most accurate form of information because you're a pilot experiencing it so tell the other pilots 
All right. Well, that's episode 23, um, probably one of our longer episodes. Um, we hope you enjoyed that interview. We hope you enjoyed the top 10 list, three of the top 10s. Check it out, spreadaviation.com forward slash blog for all top 10 reasons that you might be missing centerline. And uh, Rob, thanks for answering that online question. I think uh, at this point, we're planning for episode 24 coming up in a couple weeks. Um, if you like the episode, hello at spreadaviation.com. If you didn't, Hello, it's spreadaviation.com. <laughs> tell your enemies, man, I'm tired. What, you, if you like the episode, tell your friends. If you didn't, tell yeah. your enemies. Yeah. We'll um, take their money, too. And speaking of taking their money, we have T-shirts Oh, we Dale. do have T-shirts. Oh, we do have T-shirts. And we have stickers. Mm-hmm. Um, so go on to spreadaviation.com and hit the swag button to purchase a T-shirt. Uh, we'll also have some... Um, and actually, coupon code podcast gets you a discount on that. All right. It does. And then uh, we'll have some stickers up there as well. Uh, the more money purchase. we save you, the more flight time you can buy. Yeah. That's yeah. actually true. Yeah. From you. <laughs> and speaking of flight time they could buy from you, Rob is also available for dual instruction. If you own an uh, If airplane. you own an airplane. Uh, he's willing to travel. There is a new page on our website called Flight Instruction. Check that out as well. And uh, I don't really think I have anything else to say. You? Good night. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> One last thing before we sign off. Matt and I had the opportunity this week to catch up with some friends of ours at FCA Flight Center in Fitchburg, Massachusetts. So if you're in the New England area looking to get some quality flight training, please visit fcaflightcenter.com. Talk to Jim. Tell him Robin Matt sent you. And uh, guys, have a great, great day and fly safe.